0: Hello, friends, and welcome back to Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. We are so glad that you have joined us for another episode today, and I'm so glad to be back on Zoom Studio with my good friend, Dr. Bob Kaler. How are you doing today, Bob?
1: Doing okay, and uh, we're we're on Zoom today, and uh, my camera is locking up, so I've got a wonderful shot of me pointing. (laughs) into the the ether here, which is always exciting. But um, yeah, and and, uh, it's been a little while uh, since we had a chance to chat. So how has your fall been, Stephanie?
0: You know, it's just been great, busy as usual, but also kind of busy in a different way as we have been learning what it means to do ministry a little bit on the other side of COVID, which I'm grateful for the opportunity to learn something new, but also it feels like we're forging a new way, kind of like pioneers. How about you?
1: Yeah, same same thing. I think it's just been a, a really interesting season, difficult season in a lot of ways, um, mm-hmm. trying to figure out who, who we have and who's still part of our community and how things have sorted out. And um, and that's, that's, to segue a little bit, I, I thought, that uh, the, the book we're going to be discussing today has been really helpful in that regard for, for me, especially as a leader uh, post-COVID. And Stephanie, introduce uh, Dr. Ken Collins, who is our guest
0: Oh, yes. I am so excited to introduce Ken Collins, who is the professor of historical theology and Wesley studies at Asbury Theological Seminary, which I have been privileged to read many of Ken's books in my classes in seminary. And so it's great to be able to discuss his newest book, Jesus, the Stranger. Tell us a little bit about that, Bob.
1: Well, I, I, I had a chance to pick up this book at the new room conference and, um, Dr. Collins, welcome, first of all. So glad to have you with us. Yes,
2: I'm so glad to be here. Yes. Thank you for having me.
1: And this is a bit of a departure for you. I mean, I've read a lot of your work. Um, I do another podcast called Wednesdays with Wesley, going through Wesley's sermons, using the edition of Wesley's sermons that you and Jason Vickers did a few years back, which has been a really helpful resource for the church Um, I remember one of the first biographies of Wesley I read was a real Christian, so there are a lot of a lot of great. So I'm a little bit of a fanboy. Let's put it that way. All right. But when I picked up this book, it was quite a departure from from Wesley and and historical Wesley studies. So tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write Jesus the Stranger.
2: Yeah, I was actually planning to write, no surprise here, Bob, uh, another book on Wesley. Uh, I was all set up to do that, and in my prayer life, the Spirit was saying to me, uh, I want you to do something else. And so I have been thinking uh, about Jesus for a long time now, of course, but I've been thinking about how Jesus is presented in our culture and sometimes even in the church. And I didn't recognize that Jesus, the Jesus that I've known through, you know, careful reading of of scripture and in a devotional way on a regular basis was, um, was different. Uh, There were some cultural misconfigurations of Jesus out there. And so I decided to put a book together about Jesus and to have a thematic journey, if you will, a focus, a focus on key aspects of Jesus's ministry that would reveal his identity in a fresh way.
1: You said that you picked this up on on a run, that 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 was part of the inspiration. I read that in the introduction.
2: Yes, uh, I really do have a holistic understanding. God of creation, God of redemption, body, soul, spirit. Um, I do a lot of serious praying when I run, uh, and it is very um, helpful praying. Very, it, it's I'm blessed by it in all sorts of ways. And as I was writing this book, in a real sense, this is a COVID book because I spent I was spending so much time alone, and and I'm an extrovert. I'm a professor extrovert who comes alive in the classroom. And here I was spending so much time alone uh, writing this book, but um, in my prayer life running, just being richly fed, richly fed in that prayer life.
0: So good. I just love that, Ken. So at the beginning of the book, you, you really describe what the book is and what it is not. So can you tell us a little more about that and how you envision people using the book?
2: Yeah, um, the book is basically a narrative journey. It's a thematic presentation of the suffering, alienation, and rejection of Jesus Christ. So it is very focused, uh, and that's going to make it somewhat different than traditional devotionals. And although I've done my homework in, in terms of scholarship, Um, It's not really a commentary either, Uh, and so it it is best described as um, a narrative journey, a thematic presentation. Um, I use the image in the introduction of a curator at an art gallery, that this curator, she wants to have a special exhibition Uh, on a theme, and so she brings together a number of artifacts and paintings to highlight the work or the theme uh, of a a famous painter. And in the same way, I carefully chose um, Scripture passages from the Gospels to develop this theme so that we would see something about Christ in a very focused way. This is a very focused book, Uh, and at times— much like um, a magnifying glass gathers the rays of the sun, it can be intense.
1: You know, there are a number of things that struck me when I read this. And one of the one of the things that really jumped out to me was that this theme of people kind of not understanding Jesus and him being the other to so many people, literally, I mean, that's the title of the book, Jesus the Stranger. And one of the things that, that I thought about when I was reading this was that when, when we read the Gospels ourselves, and we read about the disciples not getting it, or we read about the Pharisees, those evil Pharisees, or or you know the Sadducees, or anyone else who comes along, we, we tend to have this sort of historical distance that we say to ourselves, well, if Jesus showed up in our time, certainly we would recognize who he is and i'm not so sure about that. in fact i'm pretty sure we we would struggle with that just like just like they did. so i have a lot more sympathy i think for those folks in the first century who are wrestling with that. what do you think yes. it was yeah what do you think it was about jesus that made him so strange to the people around him?
2: well actually there's that comment there that i like you posed a hypothetical, you know, of what if we were you know, transposed it into the first century? Would we follow Jesus? Um, and and that's, that's a wonderful question and a very good question. Um, and if we answer it too glibly or too easily or too quickly, then I don't think we're actually reckoning the cost because of how Jesus is treated by significant others by key people throughout the Gospels, ranging from his own family, who at one point thinks he's crazy, uh, to hometown folk who basically are dismissive of him, to religious leaders, even his disciples misunderstand him, uh, and then ultimately those who will seek his death. And so there was a genuine cost of being a disciple of Jesus in the first century. And that cost would be to suffer as Jesus suffered. In other words, to be a part of those who are going to be ostracized, who are going to be rejected, who are not going to be invited to the special meetings uh, and the celebratory celebratory events. The ones who will be excluded. And more than that, uh, the ones who will be slandered ridiculed, have their characters assassinated because they identify with Jesus. So I think your question, Bob, is wonderful. And we better not answer that too quickly, because it invites serious consideration. This is part of what I
0: love about the book and your focus on the suffering of Jesus, because a lot of times when we think about the suffering of Jesus, we think about his suffering on the cross or that passion, holy week in there. And we think about what he suffered then. But truly, he he suffered during his ministry greatly. And so I think that helps those of us in ministry, those of us as his followers to know that that is something that we are signing up for as well. So as you touch on that idea of suffering and the suffering of Jesus, and as we are his followers, we engage in that as well. What words of encouragement would you give to people who find themselves suffering in that way?
2: Yeah, uh, first, I just want to make a comment on what you said. I think it's very helpful, Stephanie, that uh, when we think of the suffering of Jesus, lots of times we focus on the physical suffering, and I understand that. That, of course, is very much a part of the suffering of Jesus. Um, There's that very bad movie that was made a few years ago, The Passion of Christ, and I I almost list that movie as a horror movie because it was so difficult to sit through. Mm -hmm. And I know I, for one, will never watch it again. Mm -hmm. Um, I I just found it so disturbing on a number of levels. Um, But as great as that physical suffering is, I believe the emotional, the psychic, psychological, the spiritual suffering of Jesus was greater. Uh, much greater. I mean, imagine this, that here he is pinned to a tree, he's pinned to a pole, and religious leaders are coming by, uh, and they're taunting him, they're mocking him, uh, and they're questioning his relation with God. Um, I mean, that's, uh, that's, you know, terrible pain to experience. Now, the other part of your question is, you know, where is The word of hope? Where is the word of comfort for serious disciples of Jesus today? And that's who we're talking about. We're talking about the serious disciples of Jesus today who are not going to run away, who are going to be faithful, who are going to persevere, who are going to suffer, and who are going to endure, okay, and trust God over time. What encouraging word do we have for them? And it's huge because. We have the opportunity, given the kind of toxic culture in which we live, to know Christ in a new way, that we are going to know Christ richly and deeply in his suffering, uh, because that's what's happening to serious disciples of Jesus Christ today. And, And what happens in this knowing of Christ. We come to see the sheer goodness of Christ, who is treated so very badly uh, and raises not a word in opposition, and we get a glimpse, we start to get a glimpse of the beauty of Christ. And we ourselves are transformed by God's grace and become beautiful as Christ is beautiful through participation in his suffering.
1: I, I that that's a Powerful way of thinking about that. I I was on campus at Asbury a few weeks ago and had a chance to sit down with Michael Matlock and we were talking about the Book of Jeremiah and one of the things that that Michael said that really jumped out at me. He said, you know, the the evangelical church is way too triumphalistic. You know, we we're always trying to to get ahead to the next thing. You know, it's we see it now with with uh, the whole thing like death is not that big of a deal. So, you know, we don't really care about vaccines or, you know, viruses or things like that. We're just, we're going to win in the end. And and there's this whole idea that we have to avoid any kind of suffering whatsoever. And yet, as I, as I read Jeremiah, of course, that's a, the weeping prophet, right? He He's always mm. dealing with something and he cries out to God in that way. And, I, as I was reading this book, the thing that struck me, and going back to our initial conversation at the beginning about COVID and what we're learning in the midst of this, I have to wonder, did the human Jesus feel incredibly lonely at times? Because I think loneliness is endemic to those who are in ministry, and these are very lonely times. I I talk to all kinds of clergy who are trying to figure out how to handle all of this and people have ghosted us or they've disappeared or they just are not coming back or, you know, we've we've done our best, but things don't seem to work. We're kind of stuck in the middle of all these debates. And I was talking with my counselor about this, people like Moses, John the Baptist, generally, if you're in with God, you tend to be on the outs with people's expectations. So I think that's been especially true. And and I, as I was reading this, I, I found myself gravitating even more toward Jesus because I felt like here's someone who understands that that loneliness. So what can those of us who are Christian leaders learn from the loneliness of Jesus in the midst of this? I don't know if, if that was a theme that kind of popped up for you as you, as you yeah, wrote this. Well, there's, yeah.
2: there's a good snapshot here, and I work with this passage in the book. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, okay? He's there with his disciples and with his inner three. um, And he tells them to watch and they, they can't even stay awake. And so you talk about being alone, you know, there's such a thing as a ministry of presence. You know, you just have to be there. You don't have to say or do anything. You don't have to try to fix things. All you have to do is be awake and be there and be a witness. And Jesus couldn't even have that. And by his friends, no less, his close friends. And so in a real sense, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane alone. And that kind of aloneness, I I think serious disciples experience today, because suffering is the price that sinners will demand for speaking the truth of Christ. And and so we are going to have to enter into that world and know Christ in this way, especially in the days ahead, richly. That's the course that is ahead for us.
0: Wow. Powerful, powerful stuff, Ken. So I want to focus on this idea that you talk about with, uh, people and some competing narratives. So in chapter 23, you hint a bit about the current trend of people deconstructing or tending to leave the Christian faith, which is something that we actually see the would-be followers of Jesus did during that time as well. But you point out the reality that this deconstruction is usually the result of shame generated by competing narratives. And I love this thought and idea because I think it's really uh, it helps us to open our eyes to something that maybe people have been asleep to, but people often feel pressured to conform to these powerful narratives of things like politics or cultural norms. And I have to state Mm -hmm. this quote from your book because it's it's just brilliant. And you say, in short, the gospel story has been replaced by another narrative, whether it be social, cultural, or political one. The gospel has been switched out, end quote. And I love this because, you know, it helps us understand the idea that some of these folks may remain in the church, but that everything has been redefined in terms of their new or preferred narrative that now rules the day. So as a Methodist scholar, how do you see the work of deconstruction or shame and competing narratives, how do you see those affecting the direction of the United Methodist Church today?
2: Yeah, this is a great question, Stephanie. And, you know, I'm going to lean into this one as a historian, because what's going on here right now in the 21st century with the church is very similar to what happened to the ancient church with the threat of Gnosticism. The Gnostics came in and they used all the language of the church. They talked about salvation and Christ and faith and the gospel. But they gave those turns all new meanings, all new meanings. Mm. And, and this is the challenge for us today. We have people who have effectively switched out the gospel. They've switched out the greatest story that has ever been told or could ever be told. And I make that case in the book. I tell you why. If you can come up with a greater narrative, write me at the seminary. I don't think you'll be able to do it. Okay. Uh, And so, you know, we, this story has been switched out for us. And so we need our prophets in the church, our truth speakers, who can tell us, you know, and inform us what's happening here, that the gospel has been displaced. We want Jesus. We want the universal love of God. We want holy love. We don't want the ersatz substitutes, uh, the bromides that are being offered. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: I call it the Inigo Montoya problem from the Princess <laughs> Pride. You keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. We have that happen <laughs> all the time, you know, especially in some of our, our places here in United Methodism. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I think this book has been, uh, for me, such a blessing. And I think it's been a blessing to a lot of people. When I was at New Room, it sold out by the end of the first day, I think it was, it was all gone. All their copies were gone because I think people are looking for a different portrait that is less triumphalistic and more acknowledging kind of where we are and, and leading into the suffering of Jesus. I mean, we read those words from Isaiah, a man of suffering and acquainted with grief. We only tend to read those at Lent rather than in the midst of where we are now. And, this whole idea of lament and things like that are, are so important for us to grab onto. So this is, this is a real gift. You have a, you have a litany in the back of the, of the book. Talk a little, little bit about that, Ken, because I think that's a, that's a powerful thing, not only for, for people to read, but perhaps even for churches to read through.
2: Can, can I just uh, address one little issue first? Sure. Uh, before absolutely. Before I get to the piece about the litany. Yeah. Um, you know, the question that people might ask who are beyond the church and might hear about this book and the buzz surrounding it and might be interested, you know, give Jesus a look, that sort of thing. Um, you know, what the subtitle is actually a clue and helpful to them. The man from Galilee. Okay, the man from Galilee. Wh- why should I pay attention to him? You have a Jewish man, okay, he's young, he's a a common laborer, probably a carpenter, not connected with any school, not well-connected at all, as far as I can tell from the Gospels. Why should I pay attention to him? Why should I pay attention to Jesus of Nazareth? He's a man from Galilee. So what? He's eminently forgettable in terms of so many measures of what we judge to be interesting today. But then there's the second part of the subtitle, okay? The man from Galilee and the light of the world. Whoa. How did we get there? How did we go from a Jewish man carpenter, indistinguishable from so many other Jewish men of the first century, and how did we get to the light of the world? Well, that's the... The laying out of the story of the book and what we see, I can say at least this much at this point that Jesus reveals who God is in a way that turns everything, makes everything new. We can never think about God in the same way again, never. Because when many people think about God, what do they do? They take what they value, oftentimes clotted with pride and sin, and then they maximize it, make it a superlative, and call it God. Jesus turns that upside down. uh, Jesus reveals God as humble, sacrificial love. Nails can't destroy it. Taunting cannot weaken it. Hatred cannot overcome it. So in this very, very dark place, that is Golgotha, it's full of light. It's full of light. Uh, You have to see more than the physical suffering. You must see the beauty of God, the light being revealed, like the centurion saw uh, at the cross, such that he said, borrowing the language from the Jews, This man, according to Mark, is the son of God, okay? And so we'll never think about God in the same way. The Romans didn't value humility. The Greeks didn't value humility, lowliness, meekness. That's how God has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Uh, And so it's a transformation of values. And yes, we can never think about God in the same way because of how God has been revealed in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit.
1: And we can't think about ourselves as his followers, I think in the same way either. Right. Because so, so often right now, I mean, we're being pushed into these other narratives that suggest, you know, you've got to be bowing to the, the, the the proper uh, narrative of the left or the right or wherever you find yourself. And, and to be, Uh, a follower of Jesus is to be the other, I think, in many ways in this world and, and follow that light.
2: Yes, I like what you've said, Bob, and it's very helpful because what I see out there in the culture, also in the church, is the politicized Jesus, whether from the right or the left, and Jesus is so much more than somebody's politics, so much more. He is God come to us, uh, and the revelation at Golgotha really lets us into that world, a world of holy love, a world of beauty, a world of transformation, a world of reconciliation, a world of coming together. Yeah.
1: And and you have this litany of confession, repentance and renewal at the end of the book, which which I thought was a powerful way to end the, the book. Talk a little bit about that and how people might use that both personally and corporately.
2: Yes, um, that's that's a very good question, and I thought that after the kind of journey that people had been on in reading this book, that I would be remiss as an author if I didn't provide an opportunity, some sort of outlet to express uh, their devotion to Jesus Christ. Um, God come to us. And so, yes, there is a litany of repentance, confession, and renewal at the end of the book. And by the way, if you pay attention to that litany, it summarizes the book because the major themes that are worked in the book are found there in the litany as well. So, in one sense, it serves as a summary. Uh, And it's a way That people can understand themselves in a new way in relation to God, Mm -hmm. a God of holy love. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, Ken, as we are looking forward to the formation of the Global Methodist Church, we're looking at a lot of changes coming up here in the hopefully near future. What words of wisdom would you offer to those who are working on the new Global Methodist Church based on what you've written in this great book?
2: Yes, uh, I've been reading the documents of the the Global Methodist Church very carefully uh, and have been so pleased uh, in terms of the work that has been done. And I've been in um, conversation with Keith Boyette and and I'm so happy uh, that the leadership of the WHCA is open to hearing from major theologians and historians in the church because we can be very helpful uh, in terms of knowing things that they might not know. Um, And so I've been very pleased um, with the documents that are being produced, especially the doctrinal uh, pieces, um, and have been happy to work with uh, Keith Boyette on that. And so I'm excited uh, about what's coming uh, and that we can have um, a vibrant church that continues Uh, The beautiful witness of Methodism, which is a witness of holiness and grace, a witness of holy love. Yeah.
1: Well, Ken, is there anything else you want to share out of this book? Because there is a lot here. And I know that um, this is a a great passion project for you. So I want to make sure that you get the last word uh, before we wrap up.
2: Yes. Um, Here would be a word of caution. Uh, for all of our listeners, for all of us. So if you're asking yourself the question, how do we remain faithful? How do we, as serious disciples of Jesus Christ, make sure that we're not snookered, that we stay on our story, our narrative? I think the way we do that is to emphasize what the Methodist tradition has always emphasized. What is that? it's holiness, it's holy love. I think some of those narratives out there that are trying to displace the greatest story that has ever been told, they don't like holiness, they don't. And they don't like holy love either. They wanna talk about love uh, in very loose, sentimental, amorphous ways, but they don't wanna talk about holy love, okay? And holy love is is where the beauty of Christ is and that attentiveness to that will keep us on our story it'll be a good rudder as we are navigating very difficult waters in the days ahead very difficult waters and this will keep us properly focused
1: I think that's powerful because I was thinking of a quote I think it was in one of your lectures on Wesley's sermons where you're talking about this idea of holy love, where you said yes. holiness without love is self-righteousness. Right. <laughs> but love without holiness is self-will. And sentimentality. Yeah. yeah. And we see both yes. of those together in in Jesus, holiness and love, how they can that's be right. combined together in a powerful way. And certainly that's that's who Wesley had in mind as the model.
2: Yeah, that's right. And in a sense, Jesus the stranger is about holy love. That's, that's what it's all about. It's about a Jesus who is holy and who loved us so much that he died a death on the cross in conversation with common criminals while he was being ridiculed. And he revealed God to us in a smashing way. We'll never be the same again.
1: Ken, we want to thank you for joining us, and uh, the book thank is available. You for inviting me, absolutely, I it. yeah. We, we this is a great opportunity. Like I said, it, it's sort of like uh, getting to to fanboy a little bit here for <laughs> for someone who's a metho nerd on a lot of this stuff. So I thank you for <laughs> for joining us, and um, uh, we uh, we encourage you to go get a copy of the book. You can get it from Seedbed. And uh, wherever else you you buy books, they I think they have plenty of stock. They just didn't bring a ton to Murfreesboro for New Room. But if you didn't get a copy at New Room, you can get one now. Uh, Stephanie, any last words for, for you? Any last questions? Or Well, just a big thanks to Ken for being with us
0: today and for all of, that you have contributed in so many ways through your you. work, through you your so
2: teaching. Much. I We're really appreciate that. Thank really you, glad Stephanie. to have you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you, Stephanie.
1: Well, that's it for this edition of Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. Thank you, Stephanie. You're welcome. Good to be with you again, Bob. And we'll see you all next time here on Holy Conversations.